Welcome to the National Presbyterian Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Ray Hilton, and I'd like to personally say how thrilled we are to share our sermon with you this week. If you feel encouraged by our messages, we invite you to hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. Now, let's go to the National Presbyterian Church Sanctuary and hear the word of the Lord. The scripture reading today is from Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he mocked the Jews. He said in the presence of his associates and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burnt once at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, The stone wall they are building, any fox going up in it would break it down. Hear, O our Lord, for we are despised. Turn their taunt pack on their own heads and give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have hurled insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. But Judah said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, and there is too much rubbish, so that we are unable to work on the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see anything before we come upon them and kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived near them came, they said to us ten times, From all the places where they live, they will come up against us. So in the lowest part of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people according to their families, with their swords and their spears and their bows. After I looked these things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your kin, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nilanti. 
And I'm so grateful for all of you who are worshiping with us online today and those of you who have joined us in person. God bless you and thank you for being here. Throughout this week, I have been marveling at the resonance of these scriptures. Back in June of this year, I was trying to imagine what book of the Bible we would be considering in the fall, and I kept coming back to the book of Nehemiah. I had a lot of doubts about it because it is such a, in terms of the storyline, it seems so remote to us. And I struggled with it, I prayed about it, and yet I kept hearing from the Holy Spirit that I should move ahead with the teaching and the reading of this passage for our community. I had no idea that by selecting this verse, this book, this chapter today, we would be hearing these themes that seem so relevant to where we are today as a world, as a nation, as a people. As you know, the news yesterday, a week ago yesterday, terrorists from Hamas came over into the southern part of Israel and did the kind of atrocities that you and I would never ever imagine that human beings could do to others. Thousands, hundreds, hundreds of Jewish people and their children have died. And then in response to all of that, the nation of Israel is now responding in very powerful and dramatic ways. And it breaks your heart to see what humanity can do to each other. The children, the innocent who are caught between these two groups. So reading this passage today is a difficult passage for me. I have friends who live in the land Palestinian friends, Jewish friends. I have Jewish friends in Chicago. We've met Jewish friends since, meeting, since living out here. And it breaks my heart to see what's going on with our Jewish friends, with our Palestinian friends. And the scriptures remind me again and again at the darkness, the evil that resides in the human heart and our propensity to do great, great harm to each other. So I share these words with you with a somewhat heavy heart because we're not here to pit one group against another. We're here to recognize that this conflict has existed throughout biblical history where the people of Israel have been held up to great ridicule and harm and it continues even to this day. And yet, God loves the Palestinians, God loves the Jews, and here we are in America in relative safety. We're being called upon to pray and to yearn and to say, come Lord Jesus and bring peace, not only to this hurting part of the world, but to so many places in the world where there is great, great harm being perpetrated against other human beings. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray now that as we ponder these scriptures, they will awaken within us your heart. 
for the world. That we would see evil for what it is, we would see the pain that we're all capable of inflicting on each other. And Lord, we pray that we, your children, would be inspired by these words to be peacemakers in all the places where you've called us. Lord, help us. Come, Holy Spirit, and help us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So if you were here with us last week, we read a section of a beautiful story, a beautiful picture of what unity looks like when God's people come together around a common mission and how the power of unity, the power of focusing on a central task can so motivate a people to accomplish things that are exponential to themselves as individuals. And we saw that in chapter three. The interesting thing is whenever we move from the place of the conception of an idea to actually acting on, on that idea, interesting things begin to happen, and that's what we see in chapter 4. In chapter 4, the God's people decided to take action. They said, come, let us build. And once they started building, we read in chapter 4 that resistance arises. Resistance from other sources come against them to create chaos and to literally hijack their efforts. Some of you may know the writer John Acuff. He writes sort of these inspirational books. He's an inspirational speaker. And he once said that if you want to make everybody happy, don't be a leader. Sell ice cream. <laughs> what did Nehemiah do? Clearly, he didn't make everybody happy. And thank God he didn't leave his post. He didn't abandon his mission to go sell ice cream. And so here we are at a point in our nation's history in a point in the history of our world where there is so much, so much discord, so much incivility, so much meanness. And I think there is a word here for us, 21st century Christians, coming all the way back from the middle of the fourth century BC to help us navigate these difficult times. Nehemiah, some people say, faced a form of opposition or resistance that's called vision killing or dream killing. And the people who engage in this kind of behavior are called dream killers. They're called vision killers. And the interesting thing is dream killing can come from within us. We can be our worst enemy. We can be the kind of people who engage in a kind of negative belief system, negative self-talk, negative behavior, and in so doing, we sabotage ourselves and we hinder ourselves from moving forward. But as we can see in the text, this kind of behavior that we're calling dream killing can also come from outside of us. 
It can come from others. And these people and their behavior, they're everywhere. I have to say it, folks. I've been around the block a few times as a pastor, but there are dream killers and vision killers within the church. We know that they're in government. We know that they populate our schools. They're in the marketplace where you work. They're even in our families. In fact, anywhere people gather and dreams are being birthed and goals are being set, resistance will emerge to try to kill those dreams. What I've found in my time is that the behavior of these people, these dream killers, is rather irrational. Their behavior might be driven by a dislike for you. It's very trivial. Sometimes it's driven by fear, the fear of losing status, the fear of losing power, the fear that someone's dream, someone's vision, someone's goals might eclipse theirs. And so there's jealousy and there is competition to try to keep you from being the change agent. And when you and I are opposed this way, and you know it, it's very difficult to maintain focus, to sustain drive, when people do not like you for who you are, when people do not like you for what you stand for or even how you look, like a stone dropped in the pond, it goes outward, poisoning and affecting so many. These people will spread gossip, and they will say bad things about you. They will ghost you. They will distance themselves from you and treat you like a pariah. And sadly, we know it in this country, this kind of opposition can sometimes morph into violence, into threats, and they will use all of these tactics to undermine and to destroy. And it seems to me in reading this passage over and over again this week that this is what the enemies of Nehemiah tried to do. They were not content with simply saying bad things about Nehemiah, slandering him. They were not content simply to ignore him and treat him as if he didn't exist. No, these folks launched a scorched earth strategy to destabilize this man and the people of God and their mission. What specifically did these people do? And you see it very clearly in the opening reading that they used anger and mockery and intimidation. And there are five sharp questions. They're like arrows that were aimed at the people of Israel, trying to puncture their zeal, trying to wound their spirit, trying to set them back. And you heard it in the reading, the five hard questions. What are these feeble Jews doing? And you could just hear the scorn and the contempt dripping in that question. Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? And that is a profound observation on their part because they weren't just about building a wall. They wanted to restore the land. They wanted to restore the people so that they could 
offer sacrifices to God. And these dream killers were mocking them and saying, will they really get to that place where they will sacrifice to their God? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And off to the side is this dream killer by the name of Tobiah the Ammonite, and he joined the fray. And he said, that stone wall, you could see him pointing to the rubble, that stone wall they're building, any fox could go up on it and it would break down. And you could just hear the laughter rippling out from these accusers. What were they trying to do, friends? They were trying to demoralize. They were trying to create within the people this mindset that you're wasting your time, it can't be done. But when their words didn't demoralize Nehemiah and the people of God, they ratcheted up. They escalated the violent threats and added, added additional people. Because you remember when Nehemiah came to town, we were told that that Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite were standing there and saying, how dare you come to our town to seek the welfare of these people. By the time we get to chapter 4, the enemies, they've expanded. Now we're, heard, we're hearing of Sanballat, we're hearing of Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. The, the, the enemies, it's enlarged. And when you read the word Arabs there, of course, we think in our modern sense of the country of Saudi Arabia. No, this is a much more collective word. And there was a man by the name of Geshem who was sort of a, a ruler over one of these many, many nomadic peoples who are called Arabs. But there they are, ratcheting up their animosity and their threats when they heard that People were not demoralized or dispirited that they continued in building the walls of Jerusalem. We're told once again they got angry, but this time they plotted together, all five groups, to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. And that's what these dream killers are doing. Negative, powerful tools at their disposal to discourage the people. So what is Nehemiah's response? What did he do? Aren't you glad this morning that Nehemiah didn't go and sell ice cream? Aren't you glad this morning that Nehemiah stood his ground, but he did not retaliate? And I have a lot to learn from Nehemiah. I will confess that this morning. Because when I feel people coming against me or attacking me or attacking my family, I can't sit still. I have to do something. But Nehemiah is a better man than me. He did not return their insults. He did not engage in a shouting match. He didn't respond to them. He didn't allow these people to push his buttons. Instead, he prayed. He prayed to God for the dream killers. And I want you to notice his prayer. In verses 4 and 5, he says, Hear, O 
our God, for we are despised. And you'll remember in chapter 3 when Nehemiah showed up and he called the people together. He said to them, do you see the destruction that has come upon Jerusalem? Come, let us rebuild so we can take the disgrace out of our face. And that's what Nehemiah was doing. But here these people were heaping the disgrace back upon them. And so Nehemiah prayed and he said, turn their taunt on their heads. A very strong prayer. There are lots of prayers like these in the Psalms. We call them imprecatory prayers. And it's the kind of prayer where you get so angry. You're so fed up that you go before God and you say, God, I pray that their tires will get flat on their way to work. Or God, I pray that their furnace will break down when it's 30 below. And you're so angry with what these people are doing. And it's not that you are going to go slash their tires. And it's not that you are going to go into their home and do something to their furnace. But you're just so angry inside and you're saying that to God. It's called an imprecatory prayer. And this is what Nehemiah was doing. Turn back their taunts on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt, Lord. Do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have heard insults and there it is again in our face in the face of the builders he prayed in verse 9 we read of Nehemiah praying again what I love about Nehemiah and it's something that we all can learn because all of us here are leaders in some capacity that Nehemiah was a leader who led from his knees he was a praying leader he didn't depend upon himself. He trusted in the abilities God had given him, but he depended on God. But he also didn't stop working. If you look at verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall. They're raining down all kinds of hate on him. But he kept his head down and they kept on working. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, and I love this line, for the people had a mind to work. Some translations read, the people kept their enthusiasm for the work. And these dream killers, their goal is to create confusion. Their goal is to distract. And you know your dream is dying when you spend more time responding to your attackers than staying the course. And I can think of many, many seasons in my own life when, as a pastor, you're trying to do something new. You're trying to do something different. And you experience a kind of resistance that you never dreamed would happen. And I made the mistake on a couple of occasions in my journey where I put the vision aside and I spent all of my time trying to respond to all these people, trying to get them on my side to the extent that the initial dream and vision never happened. Don't make that mistake. You'll never be able to bring everybody along. And sometimes you just have to put your head down and keep doing what you believe God has called you to do. But the other thing Nehemiah did was he adopted these protective measures in verse 9. 
Because once they found out they, they were not going to stop them, then they ratcheted up the, the, the threats and the words, and now they wanted to attack them. And so Nehemiah, again, it says he prayed to God, and he guarded the city, practical man, night and day, to protect ourselves. Unfortunately, though, these people were humans, just like you and me, and this incessant barrage of threats started to hit home. The nonstop opposition started to, started to find a place in their armor, and it started to affect them. And after a while, as human beings, there's only so much negativity that one can take. And you'll notice in verse 10 that they started to complain. They started to doubt themselves. And they started to say, this is way too much. This is way too much rubbish. This is way too much garbage to move. There's no way we can get this job done by ourselves. And then they started repeating the words of their enemies. They will not know or see anything before we come upon them and kill them and stop the work, I mean the despair, the dark clouds were now starting to settle over them and some of the Jews even panicked in verse 12 because you had Jews traveling in from a distant region coming in to help and as they were coming in, they were hearing what the enemies were saying. In fact, they said it 10 times to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Ten times, they said, this is what they're saying, guys. From all the places where they live, they will come up against us. And over and over again, they repeated the words of their enemies. And that's what dream killers want us to do. Instead of believing what God has tell it, to told us, instead of holding on to the promises of God, we start repeating the words and the mantras of our enemy. Nehemiah took action. He armed the people. Pick up your sword, pick up your shovel. He positioned them in strategic ways, and he was facing the possibility, the reality, that they're going to be attacked. He empowered them. But lastly, he empowered them in verse 14 with some of the most beautiful words that you will read. Because once he organize the people in such a way that the work would continue while they are protecting themselves. It says in verse 14, after I looked these things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Three strong imperatives. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And the third imperative, fight. Fight for your kin, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. They wanted their enemies to know that they're all in. You know, in a room this size, I would imagine that some of us here have been dream killers. And some of us, have had our dreams killed by others. Some of us are here and you know yourself. You know of a time in your journey when you actively and aggressively worked against a person or what the person stood for or what the person was trying to accomplish. Maybe you disliked the person, you disliked their ideas. 
And all I can say to you, brothers and sisters, we are the church, we're flawed, we're not perfect. And if you are doing that, my strong encouragement to you in the name of Jesus is to stop it. Stop attacking people. Stop trying to tear other people down by building yourself up. Stop speaking ill of other people behind their back. But some of you are also here this morning and your dreams have been slashed. You've been pounded, you've been attacked, and you are hurting. And you're wondering, what do I do? What I'd like to do then in closing is to share some of the words of Scripture that hopefully will prop us up these fighter passages with which we can take our stand. For example, I would urge you to practice Matthew 7 and verse 12. Matthew 7 and verse 12, in everything do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. Think about that. This is a non-retaliatory posture. This is not passive, walk all over me, resigned, throwing up the white flag kind of posture. Rather, this is a very empowering passage that whenever we are under attack, whenever people are, are mistreating you and trying to do all manner of evil to you, that you would shower them with the love of God. You would do good to them. Imagine what that would look like in our communities and our families if the people of God would do that. The second passage I would offer you today is from 1 Peter 4.13, where the writer says, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. Very difficult what he says in verse 13, but rejoice. There's a kind of joy that God gives to us in a storm that has nothing to do with our circumstances. It's this irrepressible kind of confidence that even in our darkest day, we can stand up like Nehemiah and say, do not be afraid of them. Remember your great God. I think that's what Peter is saying. Rejoice insofar as you're sharing Christ's suffering so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when the, his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. What a countercultural verse in a world where it's a dog-eat-dog, -dog, eye for an eye, blow for blow, Gospel people are praying for their enemies, rejoicing in the promises of God, enduring whatever those sufferings are, knowing that God is with them. The last one comes from the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Again, the same, similar words, blessed are you, when people revile you. I'm not there yet, guys. 
when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think what Nehemiah wants us to know today, he would say to the 21st century believing community at National Presbyterian Church, friends, I've been there, is what I hear Nehemiah saying. If Paul the apostle were here, I think Paul and Nehemiah would say to us, listen, the battles that we're facing are not coming from flesh and blood. Yes, the person standing in front of you, the email that was sent to you, the letter, the words that were spoken against you, they come from a person. But Nehemiah and the Apostle Paul would say to you, it's not just flesh and blood. There are principalities and there are powers and there are demonic forces in high places who are behind much of the evil that we see using the brokenness and the sinfulness of the human heart to exponentially spread evil and darkness in the world. And so Paul would say, the weapons I want you to use are not carnal. I want you to put on the helmet of salvation. I want you to put on the breastplate of faith. I want you to lift up the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Have your feet fully shod with the gospel of peace. That's the posture I want you to take into this world. Because our ultimate fight it with, is with far more diabolical, dark, demonic, destructive forces. And their mission was not just to stop Nehemiah. Their mission was to stop the ultimate birth of Messiah Jesus, born a Jew, born in Judah, born in the land of Bethlehem, who would come. Even at his, before he was born, they wanted to kill him born into this world of sin and woe, who came to his own and his own did not receive him. And on Palm Sunday, they were crowning him, they were adoring him, but by Friday, they were saying, crucified him, crucify him. And they killed him and buried him, but on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And when you and I are being pummeled, when you and I are suffering, we must learn to keep our eyes on those who have come before us, on the Nehemiahs, the Pauls, on Jesus who has gone before us and is coming again. I believe that the reason why this is so critical is because the world, and even in some circles of Christianity, has given itself over to a form of religious violence that almost wants to take us back in some circles to the days of the Crusaders. Jesus has a better way. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers because in the end, the meek, the peacemakers, they're children of God and they will inherit the earth. So I want to encourage you this morning, wherever you are, Whatever you're experiencing, pray for the land of Israel. Pray for peace. I want to encourage you this morning to pray for peace in your own home 
that your home will be filled with the practice of peace, your workplace, where you go to school, that you will bring the aroma of Jesus Christ into these places of deep conflict. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, we bow before you this morning on this Sunday where there is so much brokenness in the world today. The Central African Republic in Sudan, in Afghanistan, in Ukraine, in Israel. And Lord, so many people are dying because of human pride and human sin. Lord, we feel so small. We feel so disabled to turn the tide on these global issues. But God, we come to you this morning praying that you would hear our cry for peace. God, you would intervene in the hearts of these leaders and in the wrath and in the violence that somehow they would remember mercy. Lord, may the light of Christ shine brightly through us as your peacemakers. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're glad that you could be with us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website at nationalprayers.org. That's nationalprayers.org. Help us spread the good news of the gospel by sharing our podcast with your friends and giving us a rating. If you haven't already, be sure to click the subscribe button. See you next week.